Hey, Dogaritaville listeners, this is Lily with a heads up that the audio quality in this episode is not the greatest. I've been playing around with my editing software for a few weeks, and I have gotten it to a much better place than it was, but it still requires a bit of a heads up. Please keep in mind that I edit this podcast on my own, and I'm a complete amateur, so go easy on me. I do highly recommend listening, even though the audio isn't the best, because today's guest is amazing, and she has a lot of cool things to say. All that being said, you're amazing, we love you, and thanks for listening. You're listening to a special episode of the Doggeritaville podcast. Come unleash and unwind as we invite other dog professionals to our yappy hour. Here are guests from the show by picking not only the beverage, but their favorite dog topic as well. So grab a yummy cocktail, get comfy in your best chair, and join us for a chat. And as always, welcome to Doggeritaville. Welcome to the Doggeritaville Yappy Hour, where we unleash and unwind with other dog professionals. Our Yappy Hour guest today is Michelle Carey. That's her name, right? I I had to stalk you a little bit to figure that out. Uh, (laughs) And uh, and you go by Shelly typically? Yeah, any version of Michelle, basically, I will respond to. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Um, Shelly is a professional dog trainer in the D.C. metro area and also an ethologist. Um, Shelly, welcome to Doggeritaville. Thank you for having me. Great. I'm so excited to have you. <laughs> um, so yeah. Shelly was on the Zoom call that I talked about in Dylan's episode, which was how we got connected. I'm really excited to have her as a guest because she's just like, like full to bursting with knowledge and information. <laughs> um, so before we get started, tell us about the Yappy Hour beverage that you chose. Um, so I have a Ribella uh, cider and it's a cider from Spain and actually one of my dog training clients. For uh, one of my really reactive cases, gifted this to me. So yeah, figured it would nice. be a good time to drink it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome! I am drinking coffee this morning because I need it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been up since like five, no four this morning. So I am basically at lunchtime now. <laughs> this is, yeah, <laughs> this is <about> my afternoon. <laughs> Okay, so um, our first segment that we do is a little bit aggressively named because Laura and I, my co-host and I are both kind of aggressive people, Um, but the segment (laughs) is called, Who Do You Think You Are and What Gives You the Right? (laughs) And uh, basically, it's just like, you know, tell us about yourself and and what your qualifications are. So we'll start with, who are you in the dog world at at the moment? Um, So in the dog world, I am a professional ethologist. Not only am I a trainer for companion animals, rehabilitation cases, but also I train service animals and other kinds of working dog jobs. Um, but I'm a published ethologist, so I study animal behavior. Even though I'm working primarily with dogs right now, I also work with predators and primates and megafauna and all kinds of different animals. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and, and who are you when you're not working with dogs or animals? <laughs> when I'm not working with animals, um, I put myself through school and my, paid my field work by being a professional ballroom dancer. So I still teach dance on occasion and I am a charity cosplayer. So, um, I'm a part of a really wonderful group called DC heroes and we will go and with pre COVID of course would host, um, big charity events for children, turn like an entire wing of a hospital into Gotham or something for them. Um, and even during COVID we've been doing like virtual fundraisers for them to bring some joy into these kids' lives. Yeah, pretty wow. busy. <laughs> that's amazing. Do you have a, a dance that's your favorite to do? Ooh, blues dancing. 
yeah, it kind of, you can like pick and steal from all different kinds of other like more formal dances, which is beautiful. It can make you feel like a Disney prince or princess. But blues dancing, you just get to like be sassy and just like vibe with the music, which is wonderful. That's awesome. Um, and then uh, you have personal dogs as well. Yeah, so I have my personal dog is Remy Laveau, uh, named after Gambit. And he is my little service buddy in training, uh, helping me mitigate some various disabilities because that was the thing I discovered when training other people's service dogs is after a while, I was like, these like are actually very life changing for me. And I could apply that for my own, you know, uh, you know, medical plan sort of a thing. So he's still very much in training, but he is the most handsome boy in the world. And he's a mini Aussie. He's just a regular Aussie. Oh, yeah, just he's regular 55 Aussie. pounds. Okay. Yeah, there's nothing mini about him. <laughs> oh, for some reason in your, or maybe that's a different dog you're training. Do you have a mini Aussie with you? Uh, he just went home. That was Ollie, whose humans oh, gave me this cider. That's right. Um, okay. Yeah, so I actually have about like 10 different mini Aussie clients right now. I think the Aussie groups on Facebook have found me. And so there, I'm now their <laughs> Aussie trainer, which is great. I love it. Nice. That's awesome. Um, and then how did you get where you are today? So qualifications, how you learned all that good stuff. Um, so I went to James Madison University and I was an English theater biology triple major. So clearly I have a lot of interest, but I wasn't really sure which way to direct them. Um, and early on in my college career, I was assigned reading a book, Our Inner Eight by Friends of All. And it's all about you know, comparing the different kinds of primates, especially great apes and humans included. Um, and I was like, wait, you can, you can do this for a living, but you can study animals for a living. Um, and that kind of launched off where I ended up working with five different professors while I was in college on their research teams, working on publications. Um, I ended up going to Africa a couple of times, uh, both in and out of college as a part of being on a research team and learning statistics. Um, you know, it was, there wasn't an animal behavior or an ethology major. And so instead I did biology and I kind of kept my other two majors and I just grabbed everything I can get my little grubby paws on to learn and make myself valuable um, in someone's field teams. And so that's how I was able to do some field work. Um, and then after I graduated, I ended up working at an NIH contractor, uh, working with primates specifically. But there I learned how to really like delve into the world of animal behavior. I was very lucky there. And ended up becoming a department head for a multi-million dollar corporation and animal behavior there. Um, yeah, also gone to the zoo. I worked at Lincoln Park Zoo for a while as their zoological manager of primates. Um, I've always trained horses and dogs since I was like 15. So I kind of carried that with me. And my whole perspective was just on learning about social behavior, right? And like social animals. Um, so as much as I love dogs and I love primates and I love horses, I will work with any animal I can. I'm more behavior oriented than I am species oriented. Even though, of course, like dogs are always closest to my heart because, well, they're a lot safer to work with than basically everything <laughs> else that I work with, you know. And so. was it your work with primates that took you to South Africa? Yeah. So, well, that was with primate was in South Africa, but also I did apex predator research there. So we were studying how the African wild dogs and the lion kind of move in this really beautiful like ballet around each other as they move through the reserve um, because they're both obviously apex predators and would fill the same ecological niche. Um, and then my work with primates also took me to Cameroon. And there I worked uh, with gorillas and chimps in the wild, which was 
amazing. And by worked with, I mean, like we tried to follow them through the bush, but they're much better at running away <laughs> from. Yeah. So. That's awesome. How did you like find this program? Like get involved with that? Um, my, I was very, very honored and blessed to have a major or a, a mentor, I should say, uh, Dr. Irwin. And he was actually one of the founding members of the American Society of Primatologists. And so he kind of became like my primatology grandpa early on. And even in my work with other species, he just kind of opened me up to this uh, amazing world and really pushed my development of not just scientific knowledge, but, uh, you know, how to appropriately ask for help, I guess, from other researchers. Because obviously, you know, when I first entered the academic community, like I didn't know being you know, I learned like what I learned in college, but real world applications, that's very little. Um, and so finding through him other more experienced sources uh, that I could just sit and follow with or talk to, um, or they would they would invite me to things. So as they saw my talent in other areas, they invited me to Drexel and then to, to Cameroon because of my work with, you know, other animals. So it's been pretty cool. That's really awesome. Yeah. Um, so the meat of our episode today is going to be talking about um, making accommodations and training for handlers with disabilities. Um, I've seen mm-hmm. you advocate several times. Um, I mean, I'm sure this is no surprise to our listeners, but I, I follow Shelly on TikTok. Yeah. It's like how I find all my uh, all my guests. <laughs> um, but Woo-hoo. I've seen you advocate several times for using tools in a certain way or conditioning certain cues in order yeah. to accommodate handlers with disabilities. And I think that yes. is such an important thing to think about as dog professionals that gets missed quite often. Um, so I would love to dive into that. And I'm just going to kind of hand you the reins to talk about that, if you don't mind, because I, I know nothing yeah. about it. And <laughs> um, so, yeah, if you want to sure. just dive in. Yes. So if we think about, you know, just I always like to start with our, our main senses, right? Because no matter... Um, what disabilities someone may or may not have, or it could be like a short-term thing versus a long-term thing. It could be something that's chronic, it could be age, you know, just across the entire board, the one unifying factor is all of our senses. And some people may have easier access to those senses than others. And that's where like, it's just a good starting point. So if you think of the senses that we use to communicate, right? Sight, touch, sound. So if I have someone who cannot maybe make their own sounds for whatever reason. Again, maybe that they are mute. Maybe it's they have bronchitis. Maybe they are nonverbal for a various reason. Who knows? Um, but then I can use just a jingle from a leash, right? Um, or I could use a tone or I could use a whistle or just anything to kind of where one might be. I don't want to say lacking because that sounds like there's a detriment, but when one might not be as accessible, then we can use another. Um, and so I always like to approach training that way. What is the easiest way to communicate with the dog? Um, what is the easiest way to communicate with the person? And how are we going to bridge that gap in between? So similarly, if like touch might be a difficulty, maybe the person is in uh, a wheelchair and so they might not be able to like access all parts of their dog if the dog isn't, you know, if the dog isn't with them, they're not going to be able to give like a, a touch cue. And so how are we going to mitigate that? How am I going to manage through the world? Um, where am I going to make sure that this dog is oriented if someone maybe uh, has a lack of mobility on their right side versus left side? You don't want to necessarily just place the dog on where they have mobility to because then that person always has to use that side also to open doors or do things. So 
um, you know, it came from some very creative uh, problem-solving skills. You get to be really almost artistic with it, uh, especially because every disability, even if it's the exact same diagnosis, the exact same age group, the exact same, you know, demographics, they will present in vastly different ways. Um, and even for one person, the way in which their disability may present on a Tuesday versus a Friday or like whatever it is, rainy days versus sunny days um, will be different. And I think you guys have seen that in some of my videos where like I was just walking Remy one day, perfectly fine. All of a sudden the leash just moved in a slightly weird way and my finger was dislocated. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, I guess I don't get to use my left hand anymore. Like it was horrible. <laughs> um, and so I had to use instead of normally like I kind of almost use like a like a horseback riding reins grip, you mm -hmm. know, when I'm when I'm holding a leash, um, just because I horseback rode <laughs> for forever. Um, so it's, it's just, just like a natural nice, position. Yeah, yeah, it's just a nice, comfy way to hold the leash. But when your you know middle finger is dislocated, you can't do that anymore because you're sitting there. And so that's when I did like the little claw video, and I was like, well, I guess I can use my thumb and pinky. I'm <laughs> like, that's it. And so if I'm walking a 55 plus pound dog with just a thumb and pinky and then a fox startles us, right? How am I going to mitigate that? How am I going to get through that world? Um, and that's where like I do personally use tools. Um, but I use tools with Remy as a positive reinforcement based thing. Now, just like the words like no can be very negative depending on how someone conditions no. It can either be like a neutral kind of general interruption can be an actual like you know almost a warning of an aversive or can be legitimately aversive hmm. um, I've worked with some dogs who you know through past trainers whatever um, when they even hear the word no or they hear it or an, ah, or whatever kind of other you know noise that we would think is generally neutral these dogs will shut down and freak out because of you know something horrible that's happened in the past yeah um, and so while a tool could be used in, and I tell all of my clients this and I warn them and I'm all about the education, a tool can be abused and it can be a very dangerous thing in the wrong hand. Um, but so can a flat collar, right. so can any leash, so can anything, right? Um, but similarly, much like how a, an artist can either, you know, slam down a wall or a bust open a wall with a sledgehammer um, with the same kind of hammer and chisel, they can make a glorious, you know, piece of art. So it all kind of depends on, on the hands that are using them, the brain and motivation behind it. So I'll use my tools as um, accessible or accessibility accommodations. And so whether it's like an e-collar for someone who maybe just uh, they have a walker. And so a leash would also get tangled in the walker. Maybe they don't have the ability to like, you know, they won't want to hold the clicker and a treat pouch and at everything at the same time if they're using a walker. Maybe a low tone or even low stem e-collar could be helpful for them because you can teach it like Morse code for either the tone mm. or the vibration or the stimulation. Different patterns can mean different things. So okay. that person then doesn't have to even be verbal and they don't have to be, you know, have any kind of like major mobility that they might may or may not have in a given situation. Um, and so that's really cool when you could do like do 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 is like bring shoes. Mm. And it takes a lot of training. And of course, we teach the like, you know, the verbal version and a gestural cue of, of ring shoes, as it were, first before we even introduce the, the tool. But, you know, that's, that's just a neat 
a neat way for someone who might otherwise need a human assistant to right. bring them shoes or a human caretaker, which not everyone could afford. And even then, like, that's a big psychological toll on on the individual to be like, oh, I can't do anything in my life without another human Right. versus this is me and my dog. We are partners and this is my sense of independence, you know, like, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's where, really cool. that's where it comes in for me. I'm all about the independence because, um, you know, I've been there where I needed someone to literally help me get out of bed and mm-hmm. it was terrible. It was really frustrating because you're like, I'm an adult. <laughs> I should be able to do this. But you can't, and and it's just entirely different when it's, you know, like, God bless her. I love my mother. I love my family. But it's very different having Remy bring me medication than my mother. You know, yeah. like, like, God bless my mom. But, like, for me, it's, it's like, there's, a, there's like, a, a patronizing kind of aspect to it. Unintentional, but still very much there. Versus with Remy, it's like, oh, here's my adorable little monster. Like, right. helping me just do my stuff. Um, and then you get a sense of accomplishment because I'm like, I did that. You know, yeah. so with all the handlers I work with, they are incredibly involved in the training process because I want it to best fit their life. And so they like I tell them that I am just their like Mr. Miyagi on the road with training. Like I'm here to guide them, but they're the ones who are for the hands or the tone or the whatever. Like they're doing the hard work because that's the partnership I'm here to to establish, not for me. Right. Yeah. So is that um is this like a, a big percentage of your the cases that you take? A lot of the cases I take are with um, some level of disability. Those are all my service dogs that I do. So I have Inglenook Training Academy, which is like the for-profit business. But 25% of all of my lessons, um, like all the, all the funds, all the proceeds from that, all the profits, goes directly to my nonprofit, which is Partners with Purpose. And that mm-hmm. is for service dog training. Um, at low to ideally zero cost to the disabled communities or disabled individuals. Um, so yeah, but even with my, you know, what I would say, like, you know, straight off the book cases kind of thing, like people coming in from Yelp or Facebook or whatnot, um, then those individuals still have their own disabilities or their own things. It might be age, it might be a previous like sports or work injury. Um, it might not be to the degree where they need an assistance animal, where they need a service dog to help mitigate that disability, but it doesn't mean that their own needs isn't going to, you know, vastly affect the training program. Um, Cause like, again, I'm five feet tall. I can't do a lot of things that like when you talk to Brett and we talk to Dylan, um, you know, they're big guys. And so the way that they approach one case is very different than the way that I will just from sheer physics, yeah. right. From the, like necessity of physics. And so the same thing, like, um, I've done it before where, you know, as I collaborate with other trainers, they're like, can you just do a video of you handling this dog? Because they think that I can handle this dog because I'm, you know, a six foot two big, huge guy. And I'm like, oh yeah, sure. I'll show you just to like, you know, but the way that I have to use my feet or use my body is very different than, than somebody else. And so same thing with our clients is the way that, you know, a 20 year old guy is going to use his body in a very different way than a 70 year old woman. Right. You know, or or someone who had a previous sports injury on one side or might have balance problems just because they're not used to living in like the swampy, you know, DC area where it, it gets rainy all the time. You know, it can be all different kinds of things. So yeah, mm-hmm. kind of like they've bled into each other a little bit, I could say. 
So your nonprofit, um, do you, are you the sole trainer for that? Or do you have like a network of trainers who? I'm building a network of trainers with it, but right now I'm the sole trainer for it just because of the ability for funding. So we've had, I have some other trainers that are kind of on standby and some that I'm building up to, um, where once we're able to support them that they've, you know, we've already kind of arranged some, some sources for that, um, and some funding. Cause we still need to make sure that the trainer can, you know, survive and, right, yeah. and eat and things. Um, so that's what we still want to pay the trainers. It just won't be coming out of the, the client's pocket. Um, but yeah, so right now I'm the sole trainer and we have four dogs in the program right now that are being entirely supported and it can be up to a three year long process. So it's uh, pretty extensive. Yeah. Did the dogs stay with you in your home? Yes. Uh, until they get, oops, sorry. Um, and when they're young puppies, they will stay with me. And then right now, so like Miss Margot, she was what I would call like a late entry where she was already a full adult. Um, she just went through obedience and stuff first. But so she is with her, her handler and they're now in that point. Um, puppies will stay with me for the first about year or so in the program, just because I want to make sure that they, you know, have as many possible exposures in the right way to the yeah. right thing. Um, you know, and it's not just during that critical socialization period, but for me, I find that first year of life can really, really um, absolutely set a dog up for success where like, with Remy getting on an escalator, which can normally be one of the most difficult things to train because, you know, just think about it from the dog's perspective, like getting on an right. escalator is wild. Like that's crazy. Right. The ground is moving. You're going up. It's making these strange noises. Like, ah, um, the but Remy got on it. And- yeah. Like there's that weird, like, you know, like slatted texture, the corners are sharp, but Remy got on that like a pro and he was like, yeah, what's up? <laughs> you know, was like, like even as a that. trainer, yeah, like as a trainer, like I have a picture or a video of it and I'm sitting there and I'm like internally, like I'm now thinking to my friend who's taking the video. I'm like, I'm not going to scream. I'm not going to scream. <laughs> but like, as soon as we got off it, I did like a happy dance with him. I was like, who's the best boy in the world? My clever little monster. But it's just because he just, uh, he developed a generalization of sometimes my humans do weird things. And yeah. that's one of the most important things to do. And I was like, yep, your mama does do weird things sometimes, but you're rocking it. And are safe. Thank you. Um, so I hope you don't mind that I'm pivoting to your nonprofit. I'm just really interested in learning more about yeah, sure. it. Um, but how long has that been active? Um, so just for like a year now, which of course, yeah, that's the time to start a nonprofit is right in the middle of COVID, right? Right. <laughs> um, and we, I've only, so it's been set up such that I've been doing the portions from Inglenook Academy going to funding it. And then hopefully it'll be opening up to the point to the public where then we can have uh, people donate or buy like merchandise. I've got like a couple different like dog training or like animal behavior themed shirts um, that we'll be putting up on the website and different things like that. So that way, hopefully all that money could go to the nonprofit and maybe we could start another puppy program for another person. That's awesome. I love that so much. That's such a good idea. And, and how did you get involved in service dog training? So when I was young, one of my first jobs uh, was at the National Center for Therapeutic Riding. It was like I was about 10 when I started like working there. And I say working in quotations because I was 10. Um, so legally in the state of Maryland, I could not have been like an employee. But they let me work there for riding time and riding lessons. And they also had a dog component where they had dogs for we had therapy horses. And then there was also therapy dogs that were being um, rescued and trained there through that organization, which was great. Um, and so 
you know, I, I was there all through high school. Once I was 15, I was able to actually start being an employee, like an official apprentice there. And I worked with the trainers on, uh, you know, rehabbing these horses and dogs from all different kinds of circumstances. None of them purebred, or at least not what you would hope to be in a purebred, um, normally from some pretty significant pieces of abuse. So we would rehab them first to a state of being healthy and happy. And then if they were good candidates, we would bring them into the therapy dog or therapy riding program. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just like, like first exposure with training and training like with a purpose. Um, like I always say, like a purpose greater than, than a happy personal relationship with an animal. You know, because yeah. training should be a relationship builder. But I'm either trying to build a whole other different kind of relationship where it's not just companion, but it is potentially like lifesaver or, or for the horses in that case, it was, you know, giant therapist um that they were being um but yeah that was just that was my first big exposure to it it's something I kind of always carried with me especially as a an individual with disabilities myself knowing how big uh, accommodations can absolutely change your life and what seemed like you know peanuts to somebody is is you know either a massive mountain that you cannot climb yourself or the most satisfying thing because someone thought of you and you're actually able to be like everybody else for a minute um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That's, That's awesome. why I kind of brought it with me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah. I've just, I've been so interested, um, in, in learning more about just like accommodating different handlers. It's just not something that I've ever thought about, you know, yeah. like, and I wonder if that, um, if that has like been a disservice to some of my past clients, because I haven't thought about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But well, it's I mean, good it's to think about going forward. Exactly. It's always one of those things that maybe, and none of your class clients brought up, I feel like a lot of people will bring it up in really circumspect ways. So you might have even been kind of like on an unconscious level doing something where if someone says like, oh, I really prefer to have them on my right side versus my left. Hmm. And then if you're like, okay, well, right side, like, that's fine. We can teach loose leash walking on your right side. It doesn't just have to be on the left. It's still loose leash walking. Um, So technically, that could have been a mild, really minor accommodation. And you didn't even realize that you were going with it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because maybe they didn't want to say that, you know, yeah, it could just be a preference or it could be, I have hand pain on on my left hand, or I could, you know, I don't really like the shoulder. I had a rotator cuff. Like, you don't, you don't know. Right. Um, A lot of times we don't notice what I call the invisible, these daily disabilities, unless it's something right in your face. So while you might not have ever consciously thought of it, I think like just, you like as a person and knowing you as a trader, I don't think you'd be like, no, too bad. Suck it up. <laughs> like, I don't think you would have done anything like, like actually terrible, but it is a neat thing to think going forward. Cause while there are like, you know, disabilities come in all shapes and sizes, but there's also the disabilities that are inevitable where like, you know, mobility, strength, sight, or maybe even hearing are going to diminish in our clients as they get older. And they're going to yeah. diminish in our dog as they get older. So I'm not just teaching for, or adjusting any kind of accommodations for the handler side of the leash, but also for the dog. Yeah. You know, what I'm going to ask a, you know, three-year-old, you know, sound, solid, well-bred, like, Aussie, like Remy to do, well, he's not three, but, you know, like, when you get to that point, um, it's not going to be the same thing as what I ask, um, you know, Finley, who's, like, a 10-year-old lab. You know, like, I'm not going to ask him to do the same kind of agility stuff as I will with Rem because it's not fair. But it doesn't mean that, you know, I can't ask him to do some kind of agility or make modifications or accommodations for, for Finley um, 
where I would push Remy to jump the hurdle or go over the extra large or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I had to Google like way back when I um, first started internet stalking you, um, I had to Google like exactly what ethology was. Um, And am I correct that it's like um, behavior of animals, but like how it relates to humans, like how they relate to humans. So that's more behaviorism. Uh, Ethology is the scientific study of animal behavior. So it's how they relate in like the biological world. Okay. So we are, so that's kind of taking it as the difference from behaviorism. And granted, it's gotten much more like muddled in, you know, I say recent years, but by that, I mean like the past 50 plus <laughs> years. Um, but if you look on like a scientific scale and in, in recent for scientific history, behaviorism and ethology have gotten more like combination. But, um, you know, so if behaviorism is coming at it from a psychological route, which is very human based, then ethology is coming at it from a more like hard science, as much as I hate that term, route where it's more um, just observational based and it doesn't necessarily like sometimes it'll compare to humans, but sometimes it just compares to other species, other animals of the same like taxon group um, or or sometimes to us because we are also animals. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Um, and then is there anything uh, about like training accommodations that you think a lot of people could benefit from knowing, but like not many people think about? Um, I think that any tool and by tool, I can mean like what your dog wears on its body or its neck, the leash that you're using, a clicker, a treat pouch, a training collar, a halty or whatever. Um, any tool can be an accommodation. And so before like someone judges, um, whether it's for the dog or whether it's for the person, right? Any tool can be an accommodation there. And, and just because some people use one item one way doesn't mean it if they're using it well. It also doesn't mean that they are using it unwell. It doesn't mean that they are an abuser of the item. Um, so if they like ask sincere questions when you have them and expect sincere answers, but also no one is uh, obligated to educate you about their <laughs> Yeah. Because HIPAA. Because like, <laughs> Because sometimes we're just tired and I just yeah. don't want to talk about it. But yeah. Um, but yeah, so I would say just like always seek to understand uh, before seeking to be understood. And that, that applies to people's tools because I use them as accommodations. Um, but goodness knows, like I've seen some bad trainers out there and I've called them out or, or you know, in my history because I started training in like the 90s. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I had like a moment there where I was like, oh, no. Um so I've seen people do horrible things with flippers or with prongs or like a freaking flat collar even. Um, but I've also seen people do really amazing things in more recent years where where it's not compulsion or it's not abuse. Um, so yeah, we're not all painted with the same brush and we hate abuse just as much as just as much as anyone with a soul, I think, should hate. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, don't, yeah, so don't basically <laughs> don't make assumptions. And then also I think that's yeah. a really good reminder to people that like um if you see someone out with a service dog that you can tell is a service dog, like a hundred people a day ask them about their service yeah. dog and you don't need to be one of those people. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, and you can tell like if I'm standing in a line and granted, like as a trainer, I also try to be an educator as much as possible. But like I have my low spoon days too. I have some bad flare ups, like it can happen. But if I'm standing in line like it was the other day at the grocery store and it was for self-checkout, so there's all of us who crammed in this line, right? 
And this lady sees Remy. And she just goes, well, that is a handsome worker. And I'm like, he is. <laughs> and we're, just, we're stuck in this line for a while. But she did, like, it was a nice little, like, dip into the toe. Where she wasn't trying to say it. And it was, like, to herself. But, like, obviously I heard it. Um, you know, so he wasn't trying to go, like, oh, he's a puppy. But like, trying to get his attention. She was kind of, like, nice to herself. But it was, like, dipping the toe in the water. Where I could be like, yes, he is. And then I told her about Remy. And she asked him about, um, she was like, oh, what did you do? And so I showed her, like, he picked up my team. So asking, like, if you, if someone is sincerely already having a conversation with you, being like, oh, what tasks do they know? Like, that can sometimes be cool if someone's already having a conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, because then you get to show off. But never ask, like, so what are you sick with? Like, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> like, so what's wrong with you? Why are you broken and have a job here? And I'm like, oh, well, I've got a lot of acronyms uh, I don't want to talk about right now with a stranger. But, you know, if someone's like, oh, well, you know, what kind of tasks are you training them in? Um, if someone is, again, already having a conversation, don't just ask, go up and ask a random person that. But if you've already you know, struck up a conversation with them or they seem amenable to talking about their dog and their work, most of us are very proud of all the work that we've put in. Um, whether it's been owner trained or program trained or a combination thereof, every handler has to work so hard with their dog. Yeah, um, both to get through the program or to get through the training and to maintain it. And so a lot of times, like when they're in a good mood, or at least me, I can't speak for everybody. If I'm in a good place, then I want to brag about how yeah. awesome my fluffy little wiggle butt is, like how helpful he is, how he's changing my life. But but also sometimes, like, I don't want a stranger coming up and being like, what do you stick with? And I'm like, or you're not blind. You don't need a dog. And I'm like, well, oh, I don't. I just wanted to get some French bread. Like, that's all. Like, <laughs> No. And I've been seeing, I, I didn't know that this was um, a common task that service dogs perform, but I've been seeing videos, like some service dogs literally exist to keep people away from their handler, like, yep. like, you know, circle around them to keep people away. Yep. Um, so yeah, just don't, don't just assume that someone like wants to talk to you about <laughs> their service dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you can do it's, it's the way you would talk with, you know, a person if they weren't. Like if you, you wouldn't go up to a person in a wheelchair and being like, what happened to your leg? Right. right. So like that's the same way that you should treat someone with a service dog is if you happen to be in line with someone with a wheelchair or someone with a service dog and you would happen to otherwise normally strike up a conversation with that person. You're like, oh yeah, we're waiting to see this movie. Oh yeah, I saw this movie before, whatever. Then that's okay. But if the only reason you're talking to them is because of the medical device, like keep walking. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I feel like that's yeah. a good, I think that's a good rule of thumb. If you would talk to them without the medical device present, then you can talk to them. But if that's the only reason why you want to talk to them, then I don't know, it's a little awkward. I don't, yeah. I don't want that. Yep, exactly. Like someone just like shining a light on something that you're acutely aware of all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, really? I've never noticed that I have this 55 pound fluff ball with me. You know? <laughs> We're like, really? Are you using a cane? I've never, where did this come from? Ah, like, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Thank you. Stranger on the street. Just use your social awareness, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just like, be a sincere person. Cause even if it's awkward, like you can tell when someone's sincere, like I've had people come up uh, and maybe they're uh, neurodivergent themselves. So maybe that's why it was really awkward, but they're like, that's a job. And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> they're just like keep walking and I'm like wow and like as long as I don't try to interrupt you but like that's because I'll roll with it for some other people that could be like a really terrible experience and so 
yeah, try to try to use the best precaution. Well, I am really happy that we got to chat about that. Um, yeah. I do have some signature questions that I like to end the episode with. Awesome. Um, anything else that you wanted to say about training accommodations before we move on? No, I think I can think of. I'm like, I ramble and I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh my goodness. Laura and I often are recording for like two and a half hours and then I have to like cut it down to like about an hour. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I was going to be like, your poor editor is going to have to go through and like, she doesn't take a breath. I can't get a word in here to slice it down. I, I am my poor editor. So don't worry about okay, it. Okay. <laughs> well, you're poor you. Gosh. I apologize in advance. There you no, go. No. You're totally good. <laughs> like what happens um, when you have an ADHD person on your Yeah. On your um, so this would be two ADHD people speaking at the moment. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> okay, cool. So for our signature questions, I've got four of them for you. And you're welcome to ramble on any and all of them. Just FYI. Awesome. Thank um, you. <laughs> so first one, if there's one thing, it doesn't have to be related to our topic today. Um, mm-hmm. If there was one thing that you could get every single dog owner to understand, what would it be? That structure is just about communicating clearly to your dog. Um, not about necessarily controlling them, but so it's not an inherently good or a bad thing. Add structure. It's nice. It lets you know what your job duties are or what the house rules are which everyone wants to know. Yeah, exactly. So um, with structure, would you just say like clear communication and consistency basically equals structure? Yeah. And then it can be used to fit that person's house. But like if I go over to your house and say you have white carpet and I'm wearing my dog training boots, which should not belong white carpet in, and I see you take off your shoes first, then I can be like, oh, please take off our shoes in this house and I will take off my shoes. But our dogs don't know that. Like they don't, they're coming to the, the party with a different set of intrinsic rules, intrinsic, you know, instincts and behaviors. And so they don't know to take off their shoes in the house. Like their metaphorical shoes right, in the house. Right. Um, and so by being clear and consistent, we're showing them that. And that's all it has to be. Is like, hey, this is how you succeed in a human world. And they can be like, cool, thank you. I'm glad to know I shouldn't poop in here. Like, <laughs> really... <laughs> But it should be. No, you don't want me eating at the kitchen table? Got it. Like that's, it doesn't have to be anything crazy. And so it shouldn't be a word that people fear or that we let, um, you know, compulsive jerks take over. We shouldn't let them steal that word from us. Yeah. Definitely. I like that a lot. That one of the first um, like quote unquote arguments that I saw when I got onto TikTok was um, structured walks, like in the dog community. <laughs> and like a whole bunch of people were like, I like to let my dog be a dog. And I'm like, well, uh, no, but wait, like no one said that their dog okay. can't be a dog. They just have some rules on the walk. Yes. Like <laughs> exactly. Well, and that, and it's also like, okay, but no matter what your dog does, like I'm a dog. Unless you're like having your dog walk by Peedle and in like a little dress all the time and try to eat with a knife and fork. Like I that like that when people say like, I just want my dog to be a dog. And I'm like, well, good thing is they are. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I've never gotten that argument that people say, I understand. They're like, I want my dog to have time to sniff. Beautiful. We can do that with structure. Yeah. You want your exactly. dog to walk nicely at your side. Great. We can do that. You want your dog to not eat glass on the street. We could also do that. Like that's really just the, it doesn't mean that the dog can't sniff or even walk 20 feet in front of you. If you're in an environment where it's safe to do that. 
Right. But it just means that the dog knows where you are 20 feet behind it and is actually communicating back and forth, not just, you know, you're running trying to maintain that 20 feet because you're being dragged by your leash. Right. Yeah. Like I would almost guarantee that every single person who's like engaging in this argument on dog training TikTok has structure in their walks. They're just like thinking of it differently. (laughs) They just don't. Yeah. And that's why I like to say I'm like structure is all it comes down to. I was like, it's not even rules. It's just clear communication and consistency. That's it. Because some people like to call it rules, but then other people think that rules is an evil thing. But I'm just like, (laughs) if, if you got hired for a job and I had one of these jobs, and they never give you your job description, which, by the way, is illegal. And then you have to go to HR and they're like, so-and-so says you're not doing your job. And I was like, I didn't know. That was one of the jobs I was supposed to do. And they're like, well, it's in your job description. I was like, I would also like to see that because I've been asking for a while and nobody gives it to me. And then they looked it up and they didn't have the job description. Oh, my God. I, it, was a, it was a whole big mess. But, like, it was a horrible time of life for me that I literally still have nightmares from because I never knew like and I knew a lot of what my job was but I didn't know like the the immediate boss that was having contention with um would say one thing and I was like can I get this in writing she's like we'll write it down as she's saying the thing and then I do it and then she comes in the next day I said, do it this way. You shouldn't have done that. And I'm like, but you told me. She's like, well, you wrote it down wrong. So it was like, this is horrible. So that's kind of like what we do to our dogs. Yeah. If we're not providing that communication. And it was horrible. I literally have PTSD from that and like other things. Because yay. But, but like it was, it was a horrible time. And so if you're telling your dog, do whatever you want all the time, wherever. And then you're like, whoa, how dare you chew on the legs of the sofa. And you're right. like, well, you said I can do whatever I want all the time. I thought this is what I wanted. Like it's it's not fair to our dog. Um, and so I feel like everyone who has a well trained dog or a well balanced dog, whether or not it knows a lot of commands, uses structure. Yeah. They just they just might not call it that. But you know, it's like structure to a house or structure to a tent or structure to um, like a skyscraper. It's all still structure. It's just different levels of intensity. (laughs) Yeah, that's such a good analogy to like the stress of just not knowing exactly what your job is. Like exactly. Well, and that's literally what we do to our dogs in that circumstance. Sucks. It sucks as a human. It's gotta suck even more as a dog. Like yeah. Yeah, I really love that. That's a really good analogy. Okay. Next question, what event in your career has been the most impactful on you? And I think you're going to be the guest who has like the hardest time with this because you have such an extensive list of experiences, <laughs> but, um, but if you could narrow it down. I've been trying to think of this. So when you told me this question was coming, I was like, okay, I'll think of something. I have a couple, of course, no surprise. I think the first or the first one that comes to mind is I'll go back to what I was working with primates. Um, and when I was in Cameroon, we were like 25 kilometers at least into the bush. Like it was like horrible, like horrible mountain climb. It was beautiful. But like I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not in that kind of shape. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't happen. Um, but like I did it. And we live in a tent for ages and it's the rainy season. So it's raining. I'm paling out my tent every morning. And I got sick. And I got like the cold. In the middle. So I'm like sitting there and I have like, fever and snotty and gross. I'm like sitting there like I'm just gonna die. Like, I'm just I just want to die because I hate 
I hated everything about that moment. Um, and then I hear chimpanzees doing antiques um, mm. in like all around me in the rainforest. And it's like this really big, like, <laughs> and like, and it gets really, really like, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to scare my neighbors. But like, it's this beautiful, like, echoing pan tooth and it goes up to the screen um anyone wants wants to hear it i have like <laughs> but it's it's really great uh amazing and it was the first time i got to hear chimpanzees like not at the hmm. um, which is still amazing to see but like you hear them in the wild and then you hear them and it starts like behind you and then it's um and so i went basically from like feeling absolutely miserable like one of the lowest low kind of things to one of the most highest highs i've ever been in um or just was kind of like, you know, showing that like I had the patience, resilience, and it was like, you know, I, I cared enough about doing this, about caring about animals, improving the welfare of animals, regardless of where they live. Uh, in that moment that I was like, yeah, I can get through just about anything <laughs> if I could get through that. So now I think with other stuff, I'm like, oh, I mean, at least I'm not getting rained on with wet everything, like wet socks, wet tent, whatever, um, and 104 fever, you know, so like I, if I can get through that discomfort get through just about anything other discomfort right so and that was a big one um and then there was jake the dog i love jake and i've posted about him a couple times on my instagram jake was very old Uh, he was like 12 or 13 something like that when he came to me uh back in chicago and he's this carrier mix he had something like like a 95 plus percent flight rate uh even higher if it was like you know so think of like, you know, kind of Jack Russell size, but like a beautiful like Jack kind of mix. Area mix. Um, and he was, he was an angry old boy. And his mom's come to me and they're like, well, we do this uh, whole, uh, you know, our, our consultation, the initial evaluation process. And then towards the end of it, yeah, we'll work with you because he hasn't bit you. And I was like, oh, wait, what? And that's when I like learned like how serious. Oh my gosh. I was like, oh shit. I was like, I've been like handling him. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh. Wow. Thanks for telling me. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Jake, Jake taught me so much because he had all of these reactions um, and he was very forward aggressive, very, um, he, he was complete confidence in what he was doing at the time. Um, but he really taught me that any dog can learn at any age. Um, he ended up, he was fine. We got him fine around trash bags. We got him socializing with other dogs. We got him socializing with other people, and he would still always be a bit dog selective and a bit people selective. But he wouldn't. He, no longer would he try to like lunge out and snap at someone and like latch onto somebody who was just walking past. Yeah, um, in the opposite direction. But Jake did absolutely amazing. Um, and I just learned so much in in patience and in working at the dog's level and trying to see things through the dog's eyes. Because just there's a certain point with some dogs where you can be like, see, I'm perfectly fine. So you're perfectly fine. And we're like, our confidence can affect their confidence yeah. so we can through that level. But then there's this whole other level of dogs where um, they're so entrenched in their lack of confidence over an item, uh, mm. whether it's like their unfamiliarity with it or fear or previous history um, of trauma, like whatever it is um, where you being confident isn't going to do, you know, at, nothing at all it's just going to be it's going to be useless and so we have to work at things from the dog's perspective like why could this have possibly happened how can I make approximations to work with them through this um you know how can I show them 
variances to this that maybe we can work through where maybe that won't be a triggering item. Like, how can we work through? And you get really creative when you think of the job level. Um, and so Jake taught me a lot of that. And now with every reactive case, like Jake is why I like really love working reactive cases. Um, because, yeah, I might get fit up sometimes, even with all the defensive dog handling, like it's happening. Um, but Jake's humans before he passed or the day he passed, they sent me like a text message and like I was sobbing because of it. Um, but just like thanking me for helping Jake in his last few years and that like he like his last three years were the happiest he's ever had and like really oh, oh, that's I'm beautiful. Like, oh. Right. And so since him, like I'm like I think of every other dog and I'm like, that's like they're Jake's buddies because I have to help these dogs like I help Jake. So that was my yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Like working with a dog yeah. who has spent that many years rehearsing their yeah. behaviors. <laughs> yeah, that's no, crazy. and like honestly, and the like the story of Jake, and that's why I tell it because um, and it was also a combination of like his moms would set him up for success with everybody. They really did amazing. Um, Jake could have had an absolutely wonderful life, never making other dog friends. That's not necessary. Um, but just Jake actually found a joy in it. So while he's not what you'd expect, like every reactive case to end up as, as like to that degree of like, he wants to go to the dog park. So I'd be like, what? Oh my gosh. Oh, that's bananas, right? Um, but my goal is to get into a happy place, whatever is happy for that dog, like whatever that happy place is, is for that dog, whether it's the dog park or just existing at home with, you know, the family or whatever it is. Um, and so yeah, Jake's why I like to work all those pieces. I could bring him back from that kind of point then and just about every dog I feel like deserves that chance yeah that's amazing I love that story oh thanks uh so question three what has been the biggest mistake that you've made working with dogs and what did you learn from it um early days back in like the 90s early 2000s ish these are along with all the rage um <laughs> everyone loved them and I actually worked with some trainers at the time when I was, this is, I was a super baby apprentice. Um, and they were very compulsive, or what I now see to be very compulsive. Um, but at the time, that was considered like the science, even though it wasn't. Like, oh, I'm not even going to get off on like how that study from the 40s is just horrible in every single way, shape, and form. And people at the time knew it and called them out on it, but like no one did a rebuttal, like, experiment that got as popular because it wasn't as as fun to see as like alpha dog kind of a thing right. um and so even though it was kind of known as pseudoscience it worked its way into the the world um you know into pop media into the pop culture um but that was very much used as a uh, justification for this method of training and i saw dogs get alpha rolled um i saw dogs get body slammed i saw horrible stuff that now like, if they still existed, I would be saying their name. And I would be like, this hasn't yeah. existed for a while. Um, you know, but, like, that kind of a situation. And I remember I alpha rolled a dog once, and I got bit on, like, my elbow going around my, my forearm kind of thing. And it was my own damn fault. Yeah. But I remember that was, like, my first, like, bad bite. Um, like, decently bad bite. Because before then, it was always, like, maybe nips or bruises or whatever, but not, like, actual, like, proper puncture kind of bad bite. And so that kind of, like, gave me a scare. And I took a step back, and I was like, like, it's happening. <laughs> like, what is, right. like, what, 
like what led what led to this? Can I still do this? I almost walked away from training entirely, but then like I was you know still growing up, so that was like you know early early days. And then as I went through school, especially because then like I was in college, seeing uh you know going through things from my science and going through all my professors, I was really more focused on like the science of animal behavior. I learned about a ton about that, and a ton about learning behavior. And so as I kept training, I was like, I was then moving on and apprenticing with other people and like, you know, like therapy horses uh, in different areas or different kinds of like dog rescues and animal rescues. So I gained on the job skills while I was working with these animals uh, also in school and realized like, that was bullshit that I was doing. Like that was like, not just, not just like obviously dangerous, which is what I was, I had like realized, you know, when I got my ass handed to me, honestly, I realized that it was a dangerous um, method. But then I realized how dangerous it was, not just for the humans, but for the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and how psychologically dangerous that kind of, uh, I don't even want to call it, call it training because it's compulsion. But technically, that compulsion-based um, methodology is for, like, it's psychologically dangerous for both the humans and dogs. It's physically dangerous for the humans and dogs. So why would you do it? Um, and as I learned more, I was appalled mm-hmm. at what I first learned. And I would, I would give them this. I learned stuff from those, and it was only like one or two like specific trainers that were thinking about this, um, that I had personally worked with, but they were, they taught me a lot about footwork. Um, and they taught me a lot about like, like being able to use micro movements to handle a leash, like those mm-hmm. really tight. Those were the two things that I will say I learned that has been incredibly helpful. And possibly, like, they laid a good foundation for me on timing. Yeah. Like, but, like, beyond that, like, and those are still very important things, especially for a baby apprentice to learn. Um, but, yeah, everything else, basically, I learned. I was just, like, it was one of those, like, explosion moments. Where I was like, what? Everything I thought was, like, how it went in this order is trash. That's not how uh, learning theory works. That's not how even basic, like, operant conditioning works. You know, it was all of that that I basically had to relearn in college and thank goodness I did because yeah I would have been on I would have totally left animals behind I think after that otherwise it would have I don't know where I'd be oh weird like bizarro universe Shelley (laughs) (laughs) yeah Laura and I um both got into training I mean I think after all of that stuff had been like pretty much um put by the wayside um so we didn't like do any of that but we have talked on the podcast before about like like how have so many alpha rules been performed without people getting attacked? Like I, even my dogs who like love me, I feel like if I tried to roll one of them, I would get my ass handed to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah so I think the thing pretty- that I actually do with like puppies a lot now, just for like general handling and things, I'll do that. So Remy, I can alpha roll, but we don't do it as an alpha roll. Like I would do it as like, I'm going to blow a raspberry on that belly. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and then, and then he like, licks my face and then runs off and we continue chasing. It's like when we're like wrestling around. Um, but there is a way I saw one person do it like effectively, but like, yeah, just the fact. And like, you know, I think it's more the luck of the draw that a dog doesn't let you up when that happens. Um, but like, yeah, every time I still see like dog whisper stuff, they're like, I can do this. I'm like, Oh, I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, it. or like, it won't be, it'll be something. It'll be face. Like I might honestly, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's just just because I was right at like the, the end of that because it was 
I think like 2000 or so when, was when people were like, hang on a second. But Dog Whistle was still really, really popular, like all the way up through like, I think 2010 or so. Um, yeah. And it started like petering off. But yeah, so if you've been in the industry for a while, like, like these old farts, <laughs> me, <laughs> then, then you're like, my hands can do that. And that's why I say like, tools aren't abusers. Hands are abusers. Because I've seen people abuse an animal. This is both like in my early, early, early days of training. Um, and then also uh, when I've gone in on like rescue kind of issues from like hoarding or like fight ring or things. Like, I've seen people abuse animals with no leashes, with no collars. I've seen them abuse animals with their hands, with cords, with all kinds of stuff. Like you don't need a training tool to be an abuser. You need to have a messed up mind to be an abuser. Yeah. And so that's why I'm never going to shame someone for using a training tool. What I'm going to offer to educate them on how to effectively use it, ask them if it's necessary. Because most of the time as a trainer who uses tools, people who use tools don't use them. Um, they just need to learn like the proper leash handling skills. Um, yeah. But if they need a tool, then I'm going to show them how to use it the best way possible. I'm not going to, um, you know, not going to shame anybody, but also I'm not going to let them uh, do something ignorantly or uh, uninformed. Yeah. No meaning. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Mm-hmm. And then our last question is where can my listeners find you? They can find me um, on TikTok at The Jungle Nook. That's like The Jungle Book, but with an N. And then um, that is actually my like personal account that has turned into my job training account. So, oopsies. <laughs> but on Instagram, uh, I am at Ingle Nook Academy. And on Facebook, it's Ingle Nook Training Academy. So yeah, I just have like a Nook theme running through all of my screening. I'm so glad that you um, said that out loud just now because Brett always goes, the jungle nuke, the jungle nuke. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not it, dude. No, it's Nook. (laughs) Yeah, because it's like, so it came about because when I was in, um, so I always have like a little reading Nook, which is like where I do like my, my lives from. This is like my little reading Nook in my room. Um, And then I have, you know, like when I was in, uh, all of my field work trips, like when I was in Mississippi or around George Washington National Forest in Virginia, I would find like trees that I can just like sit and have a little like nook, right? Just a little reading nook. And so uh, when I was in South Africa, the same thing happened. And then um, my friend was like, you need to do a little blog for while you're in the, in the jungle. And so I mm-hmm. called it the jungle nook. And so that's just kind of how it came about. And it's my, yeah, I mean, I also have a jung- the jungle nook on instagram too but that's just for like cosplay and cider so yeah you can follow that too i guess <laughs> don't expect too much dog stuff i guess on there or at least not educational dog stuff it's very uneducational on that one but i'm sure it's still very entertaining possibly yeah i'll try to at least be entertaining if not both entertaining and educational like that's that's <laughs> what i'd like yeah both uh, uh brett and dylan when I said that you were going to be coming on, they were like, okay, um, make sure that she speaks English, like try to get her like, <laughs> words, oh you know, down to regular words. <laughs> See, I could speak like a normal person. They just, they just got bad. Cause I say things like conjunction and they're like, that's too big of a word. I was like, it's not a, di- <laughs> like it's in schoolhouse rock conjunction junction. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I started singing conjunction junction. What's your function? That was great. Um, but yeah, they they always make fun of me for using science words. I was like, I don't feel like I use them that often. I think that 
they just happen to ask me very sciencey questions. And so when I say things like secondary reinforcer, whatever, they're like, oh, you don't need to say, I'm like, it is, that's the name of the thing. So I'm going to call it that. Okay. There. <laughs> that's yeah. so funny. Yeah. I thought yeah, you we did all pick great. on each other. There was Thank nothing you. that I felt like, oh, people aren't going to understand that. No, it was all good. I tried it. Like, well, that's why I was trying to talk like regularly. And I think if, if you, if we did like another one or something, you asked about like, I don't know, sexual selection behavior or whatever, then I would be like, okay, we're going to talk about some terms first. <laughs> then we're going to talk about some actual ridiculous shit that I know. But yeah, like when we're talking about disability stuff, because I feel like that's all about making accommodations and trying to be understood. So you shouldn't be like, hey, let me ostracize people with this terrible like eyebrow speech. <laughs> I don't comprehend. Yeah, if I did that, I'd have you to be like, "Hey, Shelly, you're being a tool." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get a great bloopers reel from this. So I'm like, make that into a sound, Shelly. You're being a tool. You're being a tool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we do. Um, on our, I think it was our last episode that came out. I was talking about um using tools, and Laura was like, "Well, everything's a tool. Your clicker is a tool. Your treat pouch is yeah. a tool." And yeah. I was like, "Your tool." <laughs> <laughs> It is so everything. Tell her I agree. Everything is a tool. Your body language is a tool. If it can be used for a specific purpose. Yeah, definitely. And and I don't disagree with her, but I was like, yeah. we all know what I'm saying though. So like, yeah, I don't need to do that. Oh, I'd a hundred, I would hundred percent be like, and you're a tool and Remy's. I told, I actually do call Remy a tool on a somewhat regular basis. <laughs> I, I also call him um, my little bastard because his parents were never married. So technically. <laughs> Like, I tell him that whole thing. I'm like, Remy, you're my little bastard because your parents were never married. And my like, so mom funny. will overhear it. And she's like, what the hell are you telling your dog? But the truth. <laughs> I'm telling him the truth about his situation. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, my God. He's like, right, he's like lying down over here, like looking at me right now. Like, are you telling them about me? I, can't I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I feel like this is yeah, a really no big get for the Doggeryville podcast. So... <laughs> Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always happy to help. And I love your podcast. So, yay. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. That's awesome. Well, I know that we'll definitely love to have you back on again um, because uh, sexual selection sounds really interesting. I would love to learn about that. So so much fun. (laughs) Um, So we'll definitely reach out to you again. And if you're like still, you know, okay, appearing on our show, then that'd be great. Yeah. Always happy. It was great chatting with you. You too. Thank you, Shelly. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. You too. Yeah. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Doggeritaville Yappy Hour. We hope you enjoyed your time unleashing and unwinding with our special guest. You can support the Doggeritaville podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, following us on Instagram, and becoming a member on patreon.com slash doggeritaville. Email your questions to us at doggeritaville at gmail.com, which is also where you can send your ideas for episodes or margarita themes. And until next time, give your dog a treat from us.